Good morning. morning. I'm going to start with an easy question, and it's going to get harder from there. Have you, um, has anybody here ever been tired? Like there's like one person raised their hand. You guys are liars. We're going to, just like the first service, we're going to have to change the sermon. We can't even go where we need to go. We're going to talk about honesty. How many of you guys have ever been tired? There we go. Now, have you been, have you ever had those moments like there's tired and then there's tired, tired? You ever been tired, tired? Yeah. Like there's a word for tired, tired. You know what it is? Or term. It's called Disney tired. All you laughing have been to Disney, right? A, you, they have this thing called a Disney Vacation Club. That's a lie, right? The Disney Vacation Club should be a benefit that's given to those who book a Disney vacation because it's not a vacation and you're going to need a vacation after your vacation. Because Disney, why is Disney so exhausting? Why is it so tiring? I think it comes down to two things, limited resources and limited time. Like the amount of money you earn is not unlimited and the amount of time is limited. So when you show up to Disney, you know, hey, I've got one day, I've got two days, I've got four days, however many days you got, and I've got this much to do, and I don't know if I have time to do it, so I've got to plan out my time. I'm, I've got to do this in this order and that order so I don't miss out on this, and I've got to maximize it so that way we can make all the memories, which is why you see kids melting down everywhere at Disney. Now, a couple of years ago, if you have not experienced Disney Tired, I want to give you a picture of what Disney Tired looks like. Because two years ago, we were in California visiting uh, some family. And we dropped down to Disneyland for the first time. Two parks in Disneyland, two days, two full days at both parks. Let me show you what it looks like after two days at Disney. This is Disney tired. (laughs) Wiped out. Do you notice how many people are standing behind us? (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Like sun up to sundown. We played hard and we were exhausted. Now, last time we were in Disney World, we caught wind of something a little different. Scooters, yes, that, that's a game changer, yes. You can use a stroller to your leverage. You can use a lot with a stroller. You can get a lot, of, um, a lot of cutting a lot of lines with a stroller. But this is what we found. We saw these people that didn't seem to be waiting in lines. And what we realized is there, this thing exists called the Disney VIP experience. Do you know what the Disney VIP experience is? For the small nominal fee of $450 to $900 an hour, You and your party can be catered through the back entrance to the front of the line and have a completely different experience of Disney. The same people are in the same park doing the same things, yet having two completely different experiences. I wonder if there aren't two different ways of living life. And more specifically, I believe there are two different ways of following Jesus. Two different ways of experiencing Jesus. There's one way that will leave you utterly exhausted. And there's one that will leave you refreshed and rested. So this morning, I want us to look at two more encounters in the life of Jesus as we continue our study in the book of Mark. And I want us to see two words that I think describe these two ways of experiencing and following Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, I would encourage you not to check out because what I hope is that in our conversation this morning, what you are going to see is maybe some of the reasons why you've held Jesus at arm's length, why you haven't decided and been willing to follow him is because you misunderstood the invitation that he was giving. And for those of you that do know Jesus, I wanna encourage you with open hands to go, 
Am I experiencing the life that Jesus intended for me to experience? When you hear the word religion, I'm guessing some things pop into your head. Some things come to mind. Maybe your background growing up in different churches or different faiths or even different religions. When you hear religion, things come bursting into your mind. But I'm guessing one thing that probably doesn't pop into your mind first when you hear the word religion is the word rest. Because religion is all about what we are supposed to do. It's all about the rules. It's all about doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. Honestly, religion is all about qualifying my worth. So this morning, as we look at these encounters with Jesus, I want to start with this question. Is my relationship, is your relationship with Jesus defined more by rest or by religion? Is your relationship with Jesus defined more by rest or religion? This is week six in our study of the book of Mark. And I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, I noticed this week, I finally got to turn the page. And as I was looking back over the first two pages of Mark in my Bible, I was struck by all that we've gotten to dig into. For five weeks, we've essentially just been in two pages. And the result of that is my Bible, at least, is marked up where things are circled, underlined, themes are identified. And what I realized is like, man, how beautiful is this? And I would encourage you, bring your Bibles as we're studying Mark together this year. Because my hope would be when you drop back into Mark, after we've gone through Mark, the goal is not for us to master Mark. We're not going to get there. And our goal is certainly not to accumulate a whole bunch of knowledge about Mark so we can show how smart we are. Our goal is to encounter Jesus in Mark. And if you're at home on an afternoon, you're flipping through the channels and you come across a favorite movie. My guess is, even though it's not the beginning and it's not the end, you come in in the middle, you immediately know what's happened already and what's going to happen. And you go, ah, this is one of my favorites. I hope that's the case with this book of Mark for all of us. That when you hear a reference to the book of Mark, when you hear a sermon from the book of Mark, when you read a passage from the book of Mark, you are ushered into the journey we are on this year. And your Bible, especially as you open it and you see what was and what wasn't, you remember the themes, you remember the stories, you remember how things tied together. You, this, would become one of your favorite stories. Because the reality is, this is the greatest story there ever was. And so this week, as we jump in, to part four and five, really are of a five-part installment that Mark has given us, five snapshots we've been looking at over the last two weeks. The first week we looked at one, the second week we looked at two and three, and today we look at four and five, where Mark is giving us these quick encounters with Jesus. What we've really seen, and maybe you didn't notice it at first, but as we've gone through these five sections after today, what I believe Mark is trying to help us see is that Jesus is doing something really intentional. Jesus is systematically dismantling religion. Just look at it. In the first section in chapter 2, where the paralytic is healed, we see forgiveness is given. In the next section, we see sinners are brought near. The next section, legalism is exposed. Then unrealistic burdens are lifted. And ultimately, the way of love is shown to always be right. Jesus is dismantling religion because he wants his people to see their God. And the next two encounters, for the first time, the Sabbath becomes central. The Sabbath 
the conflict and the disagreement and the challenge from other religious leaders around how Jesus and his disciples are honoring and respecting the Sabbath, it takes center stage. And so chapter 2, verse 23, we're going to jump in here. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Notice here, the Pharisees are following Jesus. I don't know if they're close. I don't know if they're far. I don't know if there's a big crowd or if it's just the religious leaders. You almost see the religious leaders popping out of the grain field going, ha ha, we caught you. You're doing what you shouldn't be doing. But notice that they don't call out the disciples for what they're doing. They call out the disciples for when they're doing it. Because the reality is this doesn't ring any bells for us because we don't understand the culture. But back in the Old Testament, God had made a way for people who said, it's okay when you're walking through someone's field to pick some grain. Check this out. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Old Testament says you can walk through your friend's field. You can pick some grain. Hey, you can't take a bucket. You can't harvest it. So what the disciples are doing is lawful, but the religious leaders say it's unlawful. Why? Because it's occurring on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was foundational to the Jewish identity. The Sabbath was given by God when he gave the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath, remembering the Sabbath, is number four in the list of Ten Commandments that God gives Moses. The Sabbath is connected to creation and God's working for six days and then resting on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift, a blessing, a weekly reminder that they were God's people. Over the years, the simplicity of the command to rest was made incredibly complex by defining what work actually was. And ironically, now, in order to honor God's command to keep the Sabbath, it took a whole lot of work not to work. Here we see the disciples picking grain, but that's deemed work. That's harvesting. You couldn't do it. Now, I don't know about you. I don't spend a whole lot of time in grain fields. Haven't been walking through a lot of fields picking a lot of grain. But I don't think, I don't think, we, I think we miss the, the weight and the complexity of the law that was resting on God's people at this time. Now, I don't pick grain, but I do like to eat and I do like candy. I'm not real discriminatory against my candies, but one of my favorites would be Rolos. Anyone like Rolos? Yeah. Now, Rolos, if you don't know Rolos, caramel goodness in the middle, covered by chocolate on the outside. What's the downside of Rolos? What's that? Individually wrapped, Emma. Yes. Now, in a bag of M&Ms, right, you can reach in and take a whole handful. These Rolos, though, you untake one, you're like, you can't get the wrapper out, you're trying to do that, you're trying to peel it off. It takes a while to eat a lot of Rolos because of the wrapper. Now, somebody recognized that. And somebody fixed the problem. Do you know that you can get a bag of Rolos that instead of being Rolos, creamy caramels wrapped in rich chocolate, also in uh, aluminum foil, you can get a a bag of Rolos that says unwrapped? Like it literally is a bag of unwrapped Rolos. (laughs) Now, I don't know how you eat a handful of Rolos because the caramel gets a little, little challenging. But here's the deal. What if I told you on the Sabbath, you can eat Rolos unwrapped, but you can't eat Rolos wrapped. Why? 
Well, because this is work. Unwrapping is work, and we don't want to work because that would dishonor God. So we're going to honor God by not unwrapping things. Can you imagine how complicated things got? Because that wasn't the only rule. That was other rules. And you're going, well, okay, that's the rule with Rolos. What about Reese's? Like, can we, I mean, what, what constitutes unwrapping? Because technically I opened the package of the unwrapped. So is that unwrapping? And you feel the weight. The religious leaders, the laws that are put, piled on top of this simple command to rest, to not work, had become so much work for God's people. One of the reasons it is so hard to find rest in religion is because religion always complicates the simplicity of Jesus. And so the religious leaders call them out. And Jesus responds. He responds with a story from the Old Testament. Check this out in verse 25 of Mark chapter 2. He said to them, have you never read what David did? I don't know if you picked up on how snarky Jesus can be. This is an example of the snarkiness of Jesus. Have you never read? Who's he talking to? The religious leaders. Of course they had read. What Jesus is saying, you've obviously read, you just don't understand it. He's calling them out. Oh, he's pointing to this story. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus continues to pull together the Old Testament and the New Testament and show the same God then is the same God now. Here he's pointing this story. This is a story where David is running from Saul. He and his men are, are tired and they're hungry. They don't have any food. So they come to the house of God and they ask the priest, hey, we need some bread. Do you have any bread? And the priest says, no, I don't. The only bread I have is the bread of presence. And the bread of presence was 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel that was baked on a regular basis and brought and set before God for a period of time. And then it was replaced by fresh bread. And when it was replaced, the old bread was set aside so that the priests could eat it. Only the priests could eat it. So David shows up, there's no bread but that bread. And the result of that story is that bread is given to David and it is deemed okay. So Jesus brilliantly points to that story. And he says, David didn't get in trouble for doing something actually unlawful. These guys are simply breaking the laws that you have made. And I believe what Jesus is doing is he's pointing us, he's reminding us, he's revealing to us the heart of God. That sometimes we get missed in the commands and the laws and the rules that make up religion. And the, the heart of God that's being reflected here is this. God has never made a rule for the sole purpose of allowing you and me to suffer. He's never made a rule because he says, I know this is going to make it really hard on them. The rules and laws that God has given, the commands that God's have given, have always been given from a heart of a good father who wants to bless. He wants to give us what is best. I know that and you know that because you have made rules for your kids You've never made a rule simply to, so you could see them suffer. Maybe some days you think about it, right? But the heart of our God is not the heart in religion, which is to restrict, which is to confine, and ultimately is to burden. So Jesus 
reminds them of what they have gotten so terribly wrong. Verse 27, 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of Sabbath. Religion so easily takes the original purpose and flips it upside down. The Sabbath given as a gift, given as a blessing, is somehow become a burden. And Jesus comes and he calls us. He calls us to stop making my blessings a burden. Stop. Stop taking what I gave you as good, what I gave you as a blessing, what I gave you in order to help you rest and making it a burden that is crushing you. See, Jesus is pointing to a problem. He's pointing, you have gotten things out of order. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is not God. Sabbath is to point you to God. And Sabbath was given to you by a good God so that you could understand and rest in him and his provision. Here we see the great divide between religion and the gospel. You see, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of God's law? Sabbath is one of many things I think here is representative of the law as a whole that had been flipped upside down, taken out of priority, mixed up to where a blessing had turned into a burden. The law, the purpose of God's law, I believe is threefold. It's to one, display the holiness of God, who God is, how incredibly holy he is. Secondly, to display our sinful nature, our place in relation to that God. And then lastly, the law has been given to reveal our need for a savior. If God is there and I am here, then guess what? I need something, someone to bridge the gap between here and there because I simply cannot get there. The two stories today highlight the Sabbath, but it is representative of the law as a whole and how naturally we drift to rest in religion. You see, the law was given. The law was given to highlight our need for God. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was never intended to get us to God. It was to identify and help us understand and see our need for God. Maybe it may is made a little more clear this way. I've got a ladder. And if I set this ladder up and said, hey, I need somebody to help me change that light bulb. You would look at the ladder, you would look at the light, and you would go, not going to happen. But the reality is God's law has been given. God's commands have been given. And what we have done is that we take the ladder he's given, a good thing to represent our need for God, and we start climbing. We say, I can do that. I'll, I'll follow that. I'll do that. And we keep going. And our life is built, and when religion, our life gets built around doing what God said. Why? So that we can climb higher, so that we can get closer to God. Because the closer I am to God means certainly he's going to love me more, Right? And the reality is we keep climbing. 
And we get up and we keep going. And what seems good, all of a sudden we get to the top and it gets really nerve wracking. And some of you guys right now are scared to death. I appreciate the concern. (laughs) But if we're honest, some of the reasons why we are so tired is when we live our life based on religion that says, I need to prove my worth to God. Guess what? I'm standing here. And everyone knows that I'm only one step away from falling. And then I got to start all over again. And we're terrified. We're paralyzed. And the result is we do not. You can't rest. You tell me to rest here. My legs are shaking right now, if we're honest. I can't. This is not how God intends for us to live. He has not given us the law to get to him. He's given us the law so that we would recognize our need for him. So when we look at this story of the religious leaders in the fields, calling them out for eating the grain, being unlawful because of the rules that they've made so that they could somehow feel better before God, because here's the catch of religion. When I climb this ladder, two things happen. One, part of it is I'm seeking control. I want to prove to you that I have done something good, that I am somehow good before God. I want control, right? Religion provides control because I can do what I need to do to get to where I need to get. And the other side of control is comparison because as I start climbing this ladder, guess what I'm gonna do next? I'm gonna look down on you because you haven't climbed up quite as high as I have. And I'm gonna feel good about myself because you aren't, you're two rungs down from me. Control And comparison is what feeds religion. It's what drives us to live and climb a ladder we were never intended to climb because it will never get us to God. If we're going to rest from religion, we must recognize blessings turned into burdens. So I want to ask you, how in your world, in your life, have you taken something God intended as a blessing and made it a burden? Are there things in your life, things you're doing out of obligation to God to earn something from God, to do something for God? It may and well be good, but done with the right motive, it's crushing you. And God, your heavenly father is looking at you saying, I gave that as a blessing. It's not intended to be a burden. Would you prioritize it correctly? Would you recognize the Sabbath wasn't Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. My commandments were given to you to point you to your need for me. So if we look at blessings becoming a burden in section one, we jump into chapter three with this second encounter with Jesus. And we're going to see how blessings are not only becoming a burden, they're used for harm. Check out verse one of chapter three. It says again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. If you look up a definition for booby trap, this is it, right? I mean, I'm, high, I'm really uh, not, a, I believe that man with a withered hand was planted. Like the religious leaders were like, hey, how much money do you need to come to church today? And then they step back going, there's a guy with a withered hand. There's Jesus. It's the Sabbath. Here we go. We got him. But Mark, you might have picked up by now, is doing a great job of 
kind of making you feel sorry for the religious leaders, right? I mean, because what he's identified, the identity of Jesus that's been confirmed and who he is, you know, the religious leaders are trying to trap God. Good luck. It's not going to happen, right? So what seems all in their favor is about to come crashing down. Mark 3, he, Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Doesn't appear to be any exchange. We don't know what was said before. We know the man's there, and Jesus simply calls him out and says, hey, come, come here. And he said to them, the religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Trap reversed. Why are they silent? Because their motives and their hearts have been revealed. Jesus says, hey, you know, you know the God God who chose you as his people, the God who led you out of Egypt, the God who provided this and did this and did this and has been faithful again and again. Do you believe that God would want you right now to do harm instead of good? No. But in order to say yes, in order to agree with Jesus would mean that they would have to throw away all that they constructed, all the control that they had, all the ability to compare and make themselves better than others. purpose of the law was to protect and guide God's people to himself. And God will always, 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 always be found on the side of what is good and what gives life. Check out verse 5. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Can you, can you feel the tension that must have been in that room? Jesus asks the question, nobody answers because everybody knows the answer. And Jesus, I mean, I think this is an understatement here. He looked around at them with anger. We very rarely see Jesus get angry. But when he does, there's a consistent theme. There's a consistent theme where God's people have used God's commands and God's laws in order to justify harming other people, abusing other people, misleading other people. Can you imagine the look? I don't know what the angry look of Jesus was, but can you imagine him looking around this room and everyone in the room, one, knows the answer to the question and two, knows that he is not happy. But he's not just angry, he's grieved. He's grieved because his people are missing it. His people are missing the heart of his father. The people are missing God. God gave the blessing of the Sabbath and the people turned it into a burden. Such a burden that the blessing was blocking God's people from doing good. The heart of our God is good and it is love. Meaning, love will always be the answer. And if there is ever a time in our lives we have something that God told us to do, if the result of doing what God told us to do means not loving someone else 
or harming someone else, then we need to have a genuine heart check because more than likely we've gotten the command wrong. Now in our culture today, does that mean that we condone everybody? Is that loving them? No, Jesus never compromised truth and love, but he never spoke truth without love. And the reality is in this room right now, I'm guessing there's a lot of us that have been hurt by religion that have been hurt in the name of Christ, that have been hurt in the name of Christianity. There's people all throughout the world that have been hurt because of religion and Christianity. The reality was the reason that has happened is because religion has been disconnected from Jesus. And what's happened is truth has been disconnected from love. Jesus is always going to take truth and love. He's never gonna compromise either one. His math is 100 and 100 makes 100. That's who he is. That's why Jesus so simply summed up all the commands when he said, hey, just do this. Love God, love others, make disciples. Love God, love others. And if loving others is somehow preventing you, if loving God is preventing you from loving others, you probably aren't loving me correctly. So I'll ask you this question. How Maybe have you taken a gift that God has given and inadvertently used it for harm? How may you have allowed you, your following Jesus, to hurt other people? And how may God be inviting you to walk in a way that is full of truth and love? Jesus came and he calls us to stop making my burdens a blessing. And here he calls us to quit using my gift for harm. Because there are two directions in this world. Life and death. Maybe it seems like a lot of different choices in a lot of different ways, but the reality is it all comes down to two ways. The way of life and the way of death. And whenever we reject God's ways, we choose death over life. This rarely feels epic because if it did, it would be so much easier. Who's going to wake up one day and go, I choose death today, right? But inevitably, I'm guessing all of us have woken up on various days and we've said, how did I get here? Like, what happened? How, how did this happen? How did, how did I find myself here today? And the reality is you got there because little steps at a time, little choices at a time, we chose death instead of life. We chose our way instead of God's way. And we see that so clearly played out in verse 6. The Pharisees went and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Literally, the Pharisees left and chose death. They chose to pursue a way to kill Jesus. And this is what's crazy. You and I don't necessarily recognize the term Herodians, but the Herodians and the Pharisees were not friends. The Pharisees were tied to the religious establishment, the Jewish establishment. They were waiting for the Messiah to restore what has been lost. We are Jews and we are God's people and God will prevail. The Herodians said the Romans came and they're kind of got some good stuff and we're gonna gonna work with them. And we're we're gonna maybe move some way, we're gonna move their way. The Herodians and Pharisees working together on anything would have been preposterous. Much like today, when you find out that Democrats and Republicans are somehow working together, you mean that means there is some really, really, really big issue, right? That they can finally agree on. The issue that they agree on is the fact that Jesus has got to go, which I think is a reminder to us that Jesus is not some flowery figure. 
He's a polarizing character that enemies became friends to get rid of. He left no margin. It was either death or it was life. So we've seen these two encounters, the dangers of religion. And I want to end by seeing the invitation that Jesus gives for us to rest from religion. And I want to do that by looking at two stories where we see God resting. And then I want to give an invitation for us to respond to. First story is found in Genesis chapter 2, way back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 picks up at the end of the creation narrative. Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 3, 1 through 3 describes the seventh day of creation and where the Sabbath originated. We find this in verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here, I think it's really important for us to understand why God rested. God doesn't rest because he's tired. Do you see here why God rest, rested? He rested, it's listed a couple times, he rested because he was finished. God rests when he's finished. He doesn't rest because he's tired, because our God doesn't get tired. It wasn't like six days of creation. Man, that really wore me out. We better, we better take a break today. He rested on the seventh day because he was done. He rested because he was finished. But you know, the story continues in chapter three, and sin enters the world, and everything is broken, and all that God made that was good is now shattered. And all of a sudden, there is no rest. So God gives the Sabbath as a, as a picture, reminding us, one, of his provision to trust him, but also to point to one day we would receive ultimate rest in Jesus. Jesus comes, and in Hebrews 1, it recounts what Jesus did and how he is now resting. Check out Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now check this out. The exact imprint of his nature. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out Jesus is not just a character or a prophet from God. Jesus is in fact God. Jesus is God, and so you might have missed it, but earlier in Mark, when Jesus said the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man, and then he ended a little statement. He said, for even the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath which is a direct claim to his divinity. His divinity that says, hey, that one who rested on the seventh day, yeah, that was Jesus. Jesus was there. The one who rested here, Jesus, that's him. The one who, when he was here, claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, like the Lord, meaning the one who controls it, means the one who's over it, means the one who created it, that is Jesus. He's the one who made it. He's the one who called his people into it. And he's the one who's gonna ultimately fulfill it. Check out how it goes on. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may say, well, the word finished isn't there. Oh, the word finished isn't there. But Jesus is, in fact, finished because it says Jesus sat down. A priest never sat down. 
Because a priest's work was never done. The book of Hebrews is presenting Jesus as our great high priest. And he's saying he comes back. He's time on earth. His death, his burial, his resurrection. He returns to heaven. And what does Jesus do? He sits down. Why? Because he's tired? No, but because he's finished. He's done what he's come to do. Which is why Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, his life, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So let me ask you this. What in your life do you consider finished? I'm guessing if your life is anything like mine, not much. And the most of the things that I consider finished end up becoming unfinished because they break or need to be redone, right? Anybody own a house? We don't know finished. Like there's so little in our world that we can consider finished and therefore there's so little reason and opportunities for you and I to experience rest. We get breaks, but it's hard for us to rest because nothing ever seems finished. When it comes to our relationship with God, I am naturally drawn to the ladder of religion to show my work and prove my worth. What about you? I use religion. I use the commands, the invitations, the ways that God has invited us to follow him as a way to show what I'm doing for him, to show my value, but also to show, that, to show, that, show my worth, to show, to show what I have to give to him. See, here's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says we obey so that we are worthy. But Jesus came to give us rest from that because in order to do, to do, to do, to become worthy is exhausting. So Jesus came with the gospel, the good news to proclaim that Jesus has made us worthy. Therefore, we obey. Do you see the difference? It's huge. We do not obey in order to earn anything from God. We obey because of what God has given This ladder still exists, but it's used differently. You see, instead of climbing this ladder to earn something from God, to prove something to God, to make myself worthy before God, which isn't possible, Jesus, instead of climbing a ladder, Jesus came down Instead of climbing a ladder, he climbed a hill and he hung on a tree. And in so doing, he said, that ladder was never going to get you to me. It was never intended to get you to me. That ladder was simply to point you to the need for me. And here's what's crazy. From that tree, what did Jesus say? Check out John 1930, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's finished. You can rest, not because you're tired, but because the work has been done. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He died to giving us rest. And guess what? Now, the invitation that Jesus gives we find in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is for you and I to come, to come to him, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A God who came, a God who lived, a God who died, a God who rose from the dead, a God who returned to heaven and did what? He sat down because he was finished. That God, the God who's finished, making a way for you and I to get to him is saying, come. He's inviting you and I to come and I will give you rest. What are we laboring in? What are we heavy laden with? It's the burden, the weight of religion saying, I know there's a distance between me and God and I've got to bridge that distance. But guess what? Here's the key with separation. Separation is separation, regardless of how far the separation is. I can close the gap, but separated is still separated. What Jesus said, when he said it was finished, he says the gap is gone. I've made a way, and here's what's crazy. The rest we have, the invitation that you and I have to rest, is not one of idly sitting by and doing nothing. The invitation we have to rest is to live in the finished work of Jesus, which allows us to live in freedom, not from a burden of proving anything or earning anything. And the result is, therefore, the commands that God gives us change. The commands are still here. The invitations to obey God, to follow God, are still just as applicable and just as good. But guess what? My motivation changes. Instead of Lydie climbing this ladder to get to God, I climb this ladder doing what God has called me to do, knowing it can't get me to him. And guess what? The gap between here and me and him is actually an encouragement. It's a celebration. It's what Paul declares when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. What is he declaring? He's declaring the gap was so big. The bigger the gap that I show you, the greater my God is. And so when we climb the ladder going, hey, this is a ladder I used to try to get to God. Now it's a ladder I climb in which to worship God and to serve God and to love God. And I'm on the ladder and you say, I can't get to God. I say, absolutely, I can't get to God. But that cross over there, that cross is what allowed me to get to God. So therefore, religion is dead. Instead, it's a relationship out of love that God invites us to rest in. The rest that comes is knowing that guess what? The same fear that paralyzed me before when I was going to fall and mess up and have to get over it, get up and start all over again. Guess what? Every time I fall, it doesn't point to my failure. It's an opportunity for me to point to God's grace. And once again, I've been forgiven. Once again, I'm in loved. Once again, I'm allowed to rest, not strive, but rest in the goodness of my God. So my invitation to us this morning is to consider, is your relationship with Jesus defined by rest or by religion? And would you look at your life and go, what's motivating my actions? And may it not be out of fear, out of obligation, or out of earning, but in response to what God has done for you when he said, it is finished. So come and rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the invitation that you give. Thank you for the life that you offer. Not because we've earned anything, not because we've accomplished anything, but because of what you have done for us on the cross. So God, this morning we end by simply pointing to you and saying only Jesus. He's the only way. And God, we get to celebrate the distance that was between us and you because you bridged that distance. You made a way. And now you invite us to rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.